0: Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Real Life Church. I'm Pastor Kelly. I get to uh, be one of the shepherds here at this beautiful community, and, and I'm excited to continue our next series. I have a, a message today that is a, a tough one to give. I, you know, a lot of times when I am preparing these sermons and going through these things, the Lord makes me go through a lot of it first, <laughs> which is always good, but kind of hurts sometimes too, especially when it's, when it's messages like this. And, and what we're doing in this series is really focusing on what it means to shape and be intentional with church culture. How do we form a culture of goodness within this community? A goodness that pursues the goodness of God and is rooted in the fact that God is good. And so we're looking at different values every single week that help us kind of have direction as far as how do we pursue these things. What is the North Star? What is it? What are we keeping our eyes on that is Jesus, but also the values and goodness of what he gives by being close to him? And so this first one, we're looking at this week is we resist narcissism and value empathy. We resist narcissism and value empathy. And I think you're going to understand why going through this, why this was such a, an interesting message for me to try to develop and build, because there was a lot of self-reflection that happened this last week as I went through this. And it was a good sharpening and informing time for me, and I hope it is for you as we, as we dive into this. But let me first start off by going into a little Greek mythology. It's probably the only time you'll ever hear me do this. There's someone say nice out there? All right. <laughs> cool. I'm in a good crowd. Um, but um, there was a, a man by the name of Narcissus. Narcissus. And he was a very good-looking man. Uh, the Brad Pitt of his days, I guess. I don't know. And um, Narcissus had a problem. And Narcissus wouldn't allow anybody to really love him. He wandered around the world, and as people tried to get close to him, he would often reject them, and he would kind of have a, a, an attitude that he was, he was far greater and far better than most. Well, one day he runs into a, a pond, as I have uh, listed here on the, on the images, and he's looking into the reflection, and he falls in love with his own reflection. <laughs> He falls in love with himself, and as he moves, the, the reflection moves, he goes, and he tries to hug it, and it breaks up, and it ripples in the water, and he ends up actually dying and becoming a flower, and there's this huge mythology around it, but he actually, it, it's the, the, the ability of, of what he fell in love with actually ends up being his, his downfall, which was himself. He couldn't stop looking at himself. The only thing that satisfied him was the love of self. The tragedy of Narcissus was that he decided to not love anyone outside of himself. So as the ancient world looked at the story of Narcissus, they said the tragedy of this man was he decided not to love anyone outside of himself. In fact, some would say he was actually incapable of loving someone outside of himself. The tragedy of Narcissus, this is where we get the word narcissist from. The tragedy of not being able to love anyone outside of yourself. And as we look at the current psychology of what it looks like to be a narcissist, it's a complex psychosis, I guess. It's very complex. And, And what we've learned over the years is that it's a bit on a spectrum, where you have some who are very high on one side and some who are more on the lower side. And I think if you look at our culture here in the States, it's pretty simple to think and to really reflect that we probably land somewhere on this spectrum that every single one of us lands somewhere on this spectrum, whether it be on this side or this side. In fact, it may change depending on the day. But what we're learning as well is that it has a, it's a concept and it is a result of environment. And that a lot of times it's the cultures around us that will create this self-important, self-loving type of a, a narcissistic tendency. You look at the age of social media. You know We've seen, or our scientists have seen, an 80% increase in narcissistic tendencies with the birth of social media. I don't think it's difficult to see why that's the case when you're putting out there that everything is me, look at me, look at me. In fact, they ask the question most often is, how important do you think you are? That's how they rate a lot of the spectrum here is how important do you think you are with 80% people saying, I'm very important. That number used to be 30% in the 60s. So you can see with the birth of social media, a rapid change with how people view themselves. This means a lot of times it's a learned behavior, I think is what most scientists are going through. You'll you'll read different things and trust me, I, I read a lot of stuff this week about it, which is very fun to read. But, you know, I think what what most scientists and psychologists are looking at now is it's a product of environment, it's a learned behavior, it's a coping mechanism for a lot of us and how we survive, how we react to things. It's done mainly within relationship, how are people perceiving me, how do I react in certain situations and things. So it's a lot of times, it's through relationship, experience, through culture, that an unhealthy obsession with self is learned. And as we see this type of uh, obsession with self begin to draw itself into the church, I think it's not hard to see kind of on the big C church level how we get these tendencies and we champion them in a lot of our cultures. The people who have power, the people who can really speak authoritatively, the people who are, they seem to have it all put together. These are all kind of stereotypes of of what sometimes the outside world thinks of Christians, right? They're these judgmental, stereotypical people who kind of have everything put together. How many of you know that's not you and that's not me, right? So we're going to look at how we can resist that. How do we resist the the concept of narcissism as a people, something we're also going to struggle with, everything we have struggled with, we will struggle with, and how do we value empathy, because the valuing of empathy as a group of people is how we can collectively and individually resist the temptations of being an unhealthy, obsessive people about what we desire, what we think is right, what we want over those around us, and the needs and wounds of the people around us. So let's look at, there's actually a great passage that Paul highlights where we actually see narcissism in the Bible. There's actually quite a few places if you looked, but Paul has a good way of, of really ripping this out. And as you read this, as I read this to you, I don't want you to think about the people around you who might be doing this. Okay? The temptation to read these oftentimes goes, I really wish my neighbor was here to listen to this. Okay? That's the opposite again what we're trying to do here. Right? This is a time of self-reflection, a, type of, a time to, to literally go, okay, Lord, what do you want to speak to me? And I'm not going to remind my spouse as I'll drive home that this is what they do today. <laughs> so re- if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 4. And let me just read this to you. You can follow along. Paul writes, for people will be lovers of self, the Lotus, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love, what is good? There's the tove. there. There's the goodness that we're talking about. Traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Paul says, avoid these people, avoid these people. In the context of this passage, he's writing to a a young shepherd within the church of Ephesus, and he's actually speaking of certain people who are bringing in and deceiving people within the church, mainly the lady folk of the church, are being swayed by actually two names, Hymenius and Alexander, the names that Paul gives us in these passages. But he's also highlighting the importance of what kind of obsession with self leads to things that are harmful, destructive to a community, to an individual. And he uses the word philotas as lovers of self. And I think of this as kind of um, umbrellaing the the rest of the passage. He starts with the idea of lover of self. philotas, brings about this unhealthy obsession with money, this boastful attitude, this proud, demeaning attitude. And I think that's what happens if if we become self-obsessed. Philotos is the Greek word for it, lovers of self. It brings about a fruit that is extremely toxic to our relationships, to ourselves, to the people around us. Think about this, slanderers, brutality, without love for what is actually good, denying its power. Paul says there are people that you're going to have to just avoid entirely because of the ramifications of what this means in your life and the life of the body. Which I think when I first read that I was like, Wait, Paul wants us to avoid people? I thought we were supposed to just love everybody. Like just go into everybody and say, hey, I don't care how you treat me. I'm supposed to go to you. But I, I think there's there's Paul is saying, hey, there's there's people, especially young Timothy and the people of church, there's people you just cannot be around. And this is an important truth. I think you really have to get a hold of there are people who are going to be so full of philotous that it's unhealthy to even be around them. That there's influence there, that there's oppression there, that there's unhealthy and toxicity toxic, toxic traits. Sorry, that are going to bring about destruction. This is the reason it's the first list in this or first item in this list because it sprouts so many toxic behaviors. And the biggest one to me was that there is no love for what is tov. There is no love for what is good. In this type of behavior, in this type of attitude of house. This is the type of thing that we are trying to resist as a community, as individuals within a community. How do we resist the temptations to put ourselves above others? How do we resist the temptations to put our desires, our wants, our needs before those who are around us? But then also, how do we have the discernment to go, I should not stay in this relationship? I should not stay because the influence and the things that they're desiring of me, I cannot achieve, and it's breaking me, and I'm not actually thriving within what the Lord wants for me. It's interesting that he uses the word philautus because they're in Greek we actually have two ways of saying this word. We have philataos, which is the, the negative connotation, the narcissistic type of connotation, but then there's phalaton. philaton, it's It's more of the the good sense of self-love. And if you look at philatos, it's really the way of you only value yourself, is the way that Paul is saying this, you only value yourself. Whereas philaton means you know your value. Philaton is the Greek word for knowing your value. That's a healthy way of looking at self. Do you recognize and realize that you have value? That when the Lord looks at you, he says, yes, you were worth dying for. That when he created you, he said, yes, you were made in the image of God. You are my representatives in creation. That is a, a pretty high value in this world, is it not? To say that because you were made in the image of God, that you walk in the representative of God in this creation. That's how he formed it. That's how he wanted you to function. And so it's important to understand philotas versus philoton, because so often what we do, in our, especially I think in our, our society, is we, we do what's called Splitting. Splitting, where we say either someone is all bad or they're all good. It's really black and white. So if you did this, you are all bad. If you did this, then you're all good. right? What we realize is humanity is a lot more complex than that, isn't it? Humanity is much more complex than that. And so what we're seeing here is this idea of know your self-respect. Know who you are and how God created you to be. Know your value. But also know that you need to resist some things. That there are things that you're going to have to go to the Lord about and say, I am really struggling with philatons. I am really struggling with putting myself before others. I am really struggling with with not being domineering and oppressive to people in my life. Does that mean you do not have philaton? Absolutely not. You still have incredible value. You still were, were one of those people that Jesus went to the cross to die for. It's not this black and white thing. It's really a complex issue, but you need to be able to resist the self harm and self love of Philatos, but also embrace the self love and self respect of Philaton. Know your value, but do not only value yourself. If you love what is good, the idea of Tov, because you see the value God placed in you and others. The value of empathy begins by looking at another human being and being able to look at them and go, you are a value. Despite everything they've done. Despite their background, despite their history, but despite everything you've done. And to be able to still look at them and go, you still have value. You know, when I would talk to people who were struggling with narcissism, especially leaders, I've, I've known a few in my day, The hardest part for them to see is, one, to recognize it. Because usually it's everyone else's fault, right? (laughs) But one to recognize. But once they do recognize it, all they want to do is see that they have no more value. Because their value was in how they looked at themselves. (laughs) Their value was in looking at the pawn, like Narcissus, and seeing this is what it means to be satisfied. And when they're forced to not be able to look at themselves in the pawn, they start to realize... They think that they don't have any value, but they do not realize that God has put a, a value within them, by being made in the image of God just for one of those. So we resist narcissism by valuing empathy and compassion. My dream for this place is that we be a place that values empathy and compassion: empathy and compassion. The definition of empathy is this, the action of understanding. Say that, understanding. Being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experiences of others. You know, what's crazy is is I've heard pastors from pulpits actually preach that empathy is a sin. I have never, that that is a weird concept to me. But I've heard it. It's out there. It's in the internets. Okay? (laughs) So which means probably a lot of people listen to that. But really, empathy is one of the most basic things and really encompassed who Jesus was. The action of understanding somebody, being aware, being sensitive to, and experiencing what they're going through is the act of empathy. Empathy. If narcissism is a lover of self, the opposite of that is a person who values that and seeks to understand and act on behalf of others. The value of understanding where somebody is and then acting on it, that's the compassion piece. Compassion is the action of working out mercy on behalf of empathy, what you just received. And so as a people, we must first seek to understand before we try to be understood. We must first seek to understand before we try to be understood. And so this takes a whole lot of not talking, which is tough. Okay, because How many of you have opinions? All of us have opinions. All of us have, hey, this is what we should do, this is what I think we should do. We, we, we all do that. I do that probably worse than anybody. And it's really hard to be able to sit there sometimes and just try to meet somebody where they are. Because my experience is most people aren't looking for advice. Most people are just looking for a safe place to speak. Just looking for somebody who will understand them. Somebody who will sit there and go, I know where you're at, I get it. I know what you're feeling, I've been there. They're looking for for someone who will just confirm where they're at, to validate where they are at that place. We see value in meeting people where they are. That no matter where you are as an individual, as you are collectively as a family, whatever it is, our goal is to, to try to get to where you are and meet you there, not try to get you 10 steps ahead. There is so much value in being able to sit with somebody who is grieving and mourning and brokenness and toxicity, whatever it is, and be able just to sit there with them. I've, the best counseling sessions I've ever had with people are where I don't speak. Where I just get to sit with them and listen to them, doing my best to try to meet them where they are. And Jesus' empathy w- was, was pretty easily seen. One of the best ways to look at it, and I think one of my favorite passages, maybe in all of the book of John, is in John 11, verses 32 through 37, the story of Lazarus. He says in verse 32, as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, this is after the death of Lazarus, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Imagine the the emotion that she must have been at. Where were you, God? Where were you, Lord? If you would have been here, this bad thing wouldn't have happened. I've had that conversation with him before. Where were you, Lord? Where were you when this person was hurting me? Where were you when I was making these terrible mistakes? Where were you, Lord, when my niece passed away? I've had all these conversations before. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had, who had come were crying, he was deeply moved. And this word also has the connotation of, like, the drawing up of anger, which is an interesting way of looking at it. He wasn't angry that they were crying, like, have some faith. You know, he wasn't, that wasn't his, that wasn't his demeanor. He's like, do you know who I am? Like, I'll fix this. No, he wasn't, that wasn't him at all. He was angry with the concept of death. He was angry that this creation he had had to be broken. He was angry and moved because of their tears and and where they were at with it all. He saw somebody who was extremely broken by the loss of their brother, at the loss of their friend as a valued member of the community, and it troubled him. It deeply moved his spirit. This is empathy. This is being able to see somebody in their brokenness and go, oh, it stirs up to me emotion." That stirs in me the fact that I, I want to act on this person's behalf. But you can't get there if you're not meeting them in the brokenness, in the sadness, in the grieving. You haven't earned the right to do that yet. So he asks, Where have you put him? He goes in the shortest verse in all of Scripture, Jesus wept. He cried along with them. He cried along with them at the at the grave of Lazarus. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them also said, couldn't he just open the blind man's eye, or couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Why is he showing empathy? He could have saved him. He could have stopped everything from happening. Jesus was more enthralled in meeting people where they are than what their expectations were of him. Your relationship with Jesus will change when you recognize how much he's willing to walk with you, where he's willing to let you go so that he can be there with you. I mean, I've been in some dark holes in my life, and the fact that he was like, I'm going to allow this to happen so that I can meet you there so that you will actually get closer to me is phenomenal. The fact that he will do that, that he will say, I'm going to let this happen so that I can get close to you. Because every single time I've gone through a hard time, every moment, every time I've had to have a hard conversation, every time I've faced rejection, whatever it is, I have walked out of those times closer to the Lord than I was going into him. The Lord knew that he was going to raise Lazarus. He had the solution. He wasn't worried about that. What's highlighted here is his leading What's highlighted here is that he's sitting with these people in empathy, which is going to lead him to compassion and the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus was a compassionate move. Lazarus probably got the wrong end of the straw on that, to be honest with you. He was probably in his golden mansion going, hey, let's do this. All of a sudden, he's back on earth. (laughs) He had compassion for those who he showed empathy to He cried with them. He understood their pain experience. It it drove him to anger even, the fact that they had to experience this, that his creation was so broken that death was to be experienced. He emphasized with its effects. He emphasized with the fact that he knew very very one day he was going to conquer death, yet he still empathized with the effects of it. It was empathy that was met with compassion. And that's our model. That's who we are to represent in this world. Our people who meet people where they are empathize with them meet them emotionally understand them validate them recognize acknowledge the truth of where they're at and then be able to meet them with compassion whatever that looks like now there is some let me go through i guess empathic listening because there's also some warning signs i need to make sure we have balance with empathy but let's Let's talk about empathic listening a little bit and how do we actually listen with empathy because I think, like I said before, we really have to earn the right to minister to someone. I I really believe that. Like me coming in here and saying, I'm your pastor, now I have to listen to you is is not very good. (laughs) Like I have to earn the right to minister to you. Like there are times when I won't speak to somebody here in, in this church because I haven't felt like I have the right to really speak into their life yet. I haven't really listened to them enough to be able to meet them where they are. So I'll just let them talk. It's okay to not have to bring correction to every single person in your life. It's okay not to have an answer for every person who is struggling in your life. Sometimes it's okay to just sit and listen and go, I don't know if I have the right to minister this person yet. I haven't built relationship enough with this person yet. I haven't really been able to meet with them with empathy yet. Too often we try to minister to them based off of position or our age or what we've been through before and these types of things, and we just completely overlook the importance of empathy. As Christians, again, we have a common stereotype of being judgmental, overcritical. We just never really learned how to listen correctly. We just never really got to understand the importance and benefit of being a people who listen rather than being a people who are always talking. And I think what we have the opportunity of here is to be a group of people who collectively value listening, understand how to do it well, because this will influence our greater cultures. I mean, this is something that the whole world is thinking about right now. If you walked into any business environment, secular world right now, they're going, how do we listen to people? How do we listen to our customers? How do we listen to our students? How do we listen to our employees? This is a huge thing because everyone's recognizing how completely disastrous not listening is. And the church, I believe, really should be the the leaders in how we listen well. Because we've done a lot of years of talking. And I think it's time for us to now listen. So how do we listen well? It goes back to trying to understand before attempting to be understood. So here's some tips. Tips for emphatic listening. Are you guys ready? Tip number one it's not about you. Tell it to yourself when you're listening to them. It's not about me. It's about what this other person is going through. Okay? It's not about you. You were there to meet them where they're at, not for you to try to get them where you are. Okay? It's not about you. Part two put your phone away. Some of you are like, ooh. Put your phone away. Okay. When you have your phones out, a lot of times when you're in conversation, it, it kind of shows you that this is more important than this. Okay. This is something I struggle with because I'm always like, what's the email? What's that text? Oh, you know, all the, and so for a lot of times I sometimes have to put them in another room, just get them out of there. Okay. Put your phone away. Validate that they're important to you. Okay. When your phone's out, it says that they're secondary in the room. Okay. Three, refrain from criticism. Refrain from criticism. Respect their authenticity and their vulnerability. Because you're going to hear some weird stuff when you do this. And it's important not to make sure your facial features are not like, wow, huh. <laughs> okay? That, that says a whole different thing. All right? Refrain from criticism. Make eye contact. Nod your head. Ah, oh, that must have been really hard. Man, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Right? What you're doing is, is you're refraining from criticism, allowing them to share with authenticity and vulnerability where they're at. Again, this is half the battle is just letting them do this. Next one is ask open-ended questions. Ask open-ended questions. Tell, how did that make you feel? Tell, tell me more about that are good ways to kind of introduce that. Tell me more about your situation. You know, allow them to continue on conversion. This says that you care, that you want to learn more, that you care about what they're having to say. Now, okay, let me tell you ten things to fix this. All right, first off, that doesn't work. Next one, stop giving unsolicited advice. Stop giving unsolicited advice. Sometimes the greatest healing is just being there for someone. So a lot of times if, if at the end of once they're once they're you know kind of coming off of their, their talking time, you can kind of see it ramping up. I'll ask them, I'll say, hey, hey are you okay if I, I, I give you some advice? Or are you open to, to me helping in, in one way or another? What, and so it's a lot of times, sometimes you just have to ask permission to be able to speak into someone's life. Like when I came out when I first got here, a lot of times I had to tell people, hey, you have permission to speak hard things into my life. Like, if you see me doing something, I want you to t- call me out on it. I want you to not let it just go by, pretending somebody else will say something. Like, sometimes you have to just be very clear about what your expectations are, okay? So if you're talking to somebody, say, hey, like, am I okay to give you this advice? Because some people will say, I just want to talk, or I just needed to talk to you, or I just needed to, to share this one story, and you're like, great. I'm, and that was more helpful than any advice you could get so, just, so stop giving unsolicited advice and the last one don't fill up the silence don't fill up the silence because oftentimes the spirit is working in the silence I've sat in rooms that haven't spoken for a minute just watching the Lord work on somebody it's amazing when people walk out in those silent times and they go wow that was, that was an incredible time together I'm like I didn't say a word I'm glad you thought it was great. I was probably playing something in my head half the time. I tell you, this was convicting to me, too. I do not do this 100% well. In fact, I think even just, it's funny how even through the week, like, Amy and I would get, like, a a conversing argument, and I'm just, like, thinking about this. I'm like, yep, didn't listen, did not listen to that. (laughs) So again, this is, uh, as I said last week, we're, we're here to get it right, but we're not always going to be right, okay? This is, this is direction we're headed, but we're not always going to get this right on the nail. So those are my tips to, to being able to listen with empathy. So by listening and actively working to understand someone, we earn the right to show compassion to them. This is really what we're, tr- we're trying to get to. We're, we're meeting where they are, but we really are kind of go, how can I earn the right to give this person compassion. To meet them where they're at. You know, Jesus was notorious for showing empathy and compassion to the wrong people. You know, the Pharisees used to have just upheavals over Jesus sitting with sinners and tax collectors. Being able to sit there with somebody like, you're not supposed to be nice to those people. And sinners in those days was a classification. It wasn't just like, a, oh, I'm a sinner. It was a classification of people. These were your, your worst of your worst within societies, culturally. And that's who Jesus would sit with. And those were the people who were transformed by him, were the people who sat with Jesus, where he showed them compassion, where he met them where they were despite their rejection from society. He met them where they were so that he could meet them and then show compassion to them. Now here's a, a warning about empathetic empathic listening because, again, there are things where Paul's like, hey, avoid these. <laughs> avoid these people. We need balance here because I, I'm a bit of an empath just generally. And so I also have to understand there's a balance there because I will get chewed up and spit out sometimes if I'm not careful. There's a reason why 2 Timothy 3, 4, Paul says to, to, re, to avoid these philatosis. One, it's okay to recognize that relationships that you're in are harmful and unhealthy. It's okay. Some people have left churches because it's on the. They recognize the unhealthiness and harmfulness of the of the of the church. That is okay. That's why good culture should try to be shaped and formed so we do not do those types of things. And I always think of the of an oxygen mask. Amy Amy taught me this. She says, anytime you're, you're working with somebody this is like a financial thing or emotional thing or a spiritual thing. Make sure that your oxygen mask is on first. Make sure that you can breathe before you're going to start pouring out into someone else's life. It's like uh, when you get onto an airplane and they say, hey, make sure your mask is on before the person next to your mask is on because if you pass out and faint, you're not going to be any help to this person. And it's the same thing we think about in fact listening. You have to make sure that your emotional health is in a good place. Your spiritual health is in a good place before you ever try to pour into somebody else. Because you will become especially when you're dealing with people who are really strong on the narcissistic spectrum, that they will eat you up and spit you out. I have been eaten up and spit out before. So we have to have balance here. There has to be an understanding and discernment of realizing that I'm being influenced more towards house than I am Philauton. That when you're in relationships and your value is being completely destroyed, you're realizing I should not be in this relationship. Make sure you have Balance and that you are promoting healing rather than getting sick in the process. Okay, because again, empathic listening, you can really get sick by allowing those things to wear on you, and it really does bring about some unhealth. In- health. So have balance there, and have someone you can talk to. I have people that I talk to. I have people that I can go to and say, boy, I had a week. Let me just share with you my week. Okay? Find people to talk to if you don't. All right, I'm going to end with this. So overall empathic listening is about loving someone by showing them empathy so we can meet them with compassion. So we can meet them with compassion. Now, one thing I do want to point out before I completely end, though, is when we show empathy and we're listening, it doesn't mean we're affirming everything they say. I think sometimes we get a little confused by empathy and affirmation. Okay, so I can I can show you empathy, and I can meet you where you are by completely disagreeing with everything you're saying. I can validate you without agreeing with everything that you're saying, because empathy does not mean affirmation. Empathy means I'm meeting somebody where they are and I'm listening to them and acknowledging that that's where they are. Do you guys see the difference here? because so often you're going i mean you are going to run into people you disagree with you are going to run into people who hate you i mean jesus said that right and who did he say he was we were supposed to love those who hate us and persecute us right i think that i think what jesus would do is he would come down and he was like how do i know about kelly i'm going to ask the people who don't agree with him who he is I'm going to ask the people who don't like him what his character is like. What if the Lord came down and said, and talked to your neighbors and said, hey, what is this person like? How do they listen? How do they love? I don't think he would ask the people that are easy to love. He's going to ask the difficult people to love how we love. I think the churches in the world that are going to really just being the light of Jesus, are those who really love the people who hate them well and listen to the people who disagree with them well, but still using mercy and compassion to lead them to him. To the most hurting, abused, and broken people, the love they need from us is that we acknowledge their pain and we don't always affirm it. So one thing I want you to do this week as kind of a a take-home exercise, and I think small groups are going to be touching on this as well. I want you to ask people in your sphere of influence, your relationships, your, your spouses, your friends, your kids, whatever it is, ask them this question, how do you experience me? What emotions, what feelings, what things come to mind when you have to talk to me about something? Because I've had people in my life who I just feel like if I got into a room with that person, I would be a nervous wreck. Ask the question and then don't say a word. Just listen to them. Meet them where they are by how they're expressing and explaining how they experience you in their life. These are not accusations. Take them as feedback. Sometimes we don't know the difference between feedback and accusations. Take it as feedback. Take it as a place to go, okay, I'm going to listen to this person, I'm going to meet them where they are, and I'm going to learn how to show compassion to these people. So how do you experience me? And I'll end with this. Remember the words of our Jesus of Jesus our Lord. In Matthew 9, 12, it says, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now go and learn what this means. I desire compassion rather than sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.